The Mets finally won a game. I forgot what that feels like. So is there any chance in the world they can still make the playoffs? We dive into the series loss to the Phillies, the final dozen games ahead, beginning with two in Boston, and try to figure out some miracle scenario where they still have a chance to win the division. Our special guest this week is a good friend of the program, and we'll react to his role in the Once Upon a Time in Queens 30 for 30 documentary on the 1986 Mets. It's the legendary Doc Gooden. So join us for holding on to a prayer edition of Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome back to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Jake Brown, alongside my co-host, former Met pitcher Nelson Figueroa. Follow us on Twitter at Amazing But True, at Jake Brown Radio, at Figgy NY. Subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, or get us wherever else you get podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon. Check us out everywhere. Thanks to everyone who supported the fundraiser at Catch Astoria and donated online on the Rally Up. Figgy, I believe the final numbers are all in. We're over 12000 A good price on the Alonzo ball was what, like a couple hundred? The lesson with you went for five or 600 What were some of the numbers on there? It was uh, five fifty for the lesson with me for four pitchers for an hour and a half. We had the Alonzo ball went for over... I believe it was $250. Um, the Jacob DeGrom helmet was about $450. So I signed Jacob DeGrom helmet. And then we had a golf outing threesome with me for like 750 bucks, 725 bucks, something like that. And excited to uh, take part in all these things. It's going to be great to uh, actually meet the people who helped support uh, us with the auctions. And, you know, we really appreciate how the, t- not just the turnout, but the support uh, Maggie Gray, uh, out of, you know, reached out to me. She's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I missed this message. Would love to have been there. You know, can I donate? And she donated. I wrote to her, I said, you know, way too generous. Thank you so much for donating. Uh, I was like, it was really more about wanting a chance to see you guys, you know, for the moose and Maggie and all those guys, JJ came out, you know, we had a lot of people show up Christian and, and Jeff Nelson was a, it was a great time had by all to get a chance to see a lot of smiles and a lot of familiar faces and to raise some money, a great opportunity and catch did a, a fantastic job being the host. Yeah, great night overall. Thanks to Maggie for that donation. Mama Brown made a donation. Everyone contributed. And thanks to Maida for setting up and you. And all is good in the hood. And all is good after a Mets win. Uh, first one of the week. Ugh. One in five on the six games. And really... You know, I heart back to that Tuesday night that that left me a hopeless, chubby, tall man. I, I say that because I was described by the lady at the coffee shop as tall white man. So I'll yeah. add that to my LinkedIn. Uh, they didn't know my name. So they said, uh, give that to the tall white guy. That's your pronoun? Yeah, that's it. That's all I got going for me, I guess, <laughs> tall. Um, that's, you know, that's a good feature, but uh, that's about it. And we won a game on Sunday. I mean, it was nice to win, but. God, just a rough, brutal week that Tuesday, you win your two and a half out. You wake up Monday, you're seven games back of the wild card. I mean, there is a chance by the weekend that the Mets are eliminated a week early 
from the wild card, which is insane. The Braves had lost five in a row. You were in prime position. You win games to get it within one and a half. And remember that three final games in Atlanta and the Mets blew it. They crapped the bed and they crapped their playoff chances, but you're holding on to some kind of hope. Five and a half, 12 to play. You know, those final three, say you take those two and a half, you know, you got to pick up two and a half games in the next week and a half before those final three in Atlanta. But I guess it was good to win Sunday. It was good to see Dom Smith get a clutch hit. Jeff McNeil with the clutch homer uh they win a game and maybe that pumps them up going into this weird two-game series in boston i know a lot of the the seven line army is going to be out there maybe they root them on but huge games for boston a lot bigger than for us we're just trying to hang in there the red sox are trying to hold on to wild card spot over the yankees and the blue jays so two big games and just a big stretch here for the mets if it's really just win 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 in the words of jay rock you got to win every single day yeah and now you have to handle your own business it's not even worth looking up at the scoreboard because every time we looked up at the scoreboard and so we had chances multiple chances throughout the week to pick up games because everybody else was losing you know you didn't lose much ground could have been worse losing five games in a row uh when you really needed to continue the tremendous this wave confidence that you had coming out of the subway series should have swept the subway series and you know you had the nice uh interaction with the yankees with uh lindor and Baez telling them to beat it you know go kick rocks waving them off and being able to have that uh, moment for lindor with the three home runs they had the day off at the wrong time as it always seems to happen and you run into a buzzsaw in the cardinals the cardinals just ran right through them they didn't see that coming and the cardinals continue to streak as they look to try and get one of those wild cards. Every team is playing as hard as they can to do this, man. And it has been a big shift from when the Mets were in first place. And, you know, San Diego was right there and making a push. And all of a sudden they have fall, fallen way down. Well, Ficky, they started the week, the Cardinals, out of the wild card. Now they are three games up. What a yeah. turn of events the Mets will give you uh, to becoming three games up after having a deficit in the wild card. That's exactly it. It, it. it was all in your hands. And there's no one else to blame. You had every opportunity and multiple opportunities in every single game to have a chance to win those games. And we, we saw the Mets just kind of throw some games away against the Cardinals, especially early in the week. And then you see the Phillies come into town and it's kind of the same thing where it's lackluster baseball when it, it can't be. It, it should be the most inspired baseball that you're playing because there is still a chance, especially with that many games left to go. You know, you're talking about 15, 16, 17 games left to play. Um, that's where you had to put your best effort forward. Now you're still you're back against the wall, right? You got nothing to lose. So you you hope that something kicks in. And if they are able to put in a nice streak and you go into Atlanta with three games to play and you have a shot. I, I mean, I still consider it a successful season, but man, what a season it could have been if they just hit a lick. You didn't have a Jacob DeGrom have that injury and so Syndergaard was able to come back. The What If series on Marvel is pretty cool, but the What If in Queens documentary that could be made about this team might be even cooler. Yeah, and we'll talk about the 86 Mets doc, the Once Upon a Time in Queens with Doc Gooden, uh, who's going to join us. Lots of docs, docs, documentaries, and, and Dr. Gooden uh, will be joining us later in the show, friend of the program. It's hard to watch the scoreboard now because the Mets just aren't winning enough games to do so. If you were to be the scoreboard watcher this week, it's it's not going to be good because the Braves get four against the lowly Diamondbacks. Listen, the Diamondbacks played spoiler a little bit against the Phillies last month. We're going to need them to split, maybe take at least one this week. The Mets got to shock the world, beat the Red Sox, and beat the Brewers. The Mets this week have to probably go four and one and then sweep the Marlins. Let's say you're eight and one. <laughs> the next nine before those final three 
Maybe you're within three, and you could hope for a sweep in Atlanta. If they're within three in Atlanta, I guess I might have to look at Spirit Airlines prices. I never thought I'd have to ride Spirit or Frontier because I'd be the guy holding the video screaming world star at the fights that are going to happen if I were to do so. But uh, I might have to start looking up those prices because it's going to be a last-minute booking if I were to make the trip to Atlanta. But it, it must happen because if those games mean something, it means this next week and a half was absolutely electric. I don't expect it. But uh, for the sake of this show and continue to listen to Amazing But True, we're going to have to hope it's interesting because uh, we're going to be uh, you know pretty depressed next week if they're already eliminated. Four against the D-backs, three Padres, three Phillies. And now the Phillies, look, they've made this thing interesting. they got an MVP candidate in Bryce Harper. The Phillies have been pretty impressive lately, and they're a team to watch because they get three against the Orioles, three against the Pirates, and then they could control their own destiny against the Braves for three and then the Marlins for three. The Phillies have a good chance to win this division if they beat the teams they should and they take that series against the Braves. And what a wild turn of events if the Philadelphia Phillies end up winning the NLEs, Figgy. That's exactly what you're looking at as a team like that to get on a hot streak, and they have been playing much better baseball as of lately. And then if you just think back just a few short years ago, I, I always talk about how the Nationals were left for dead after 50 games, and then they just found a way to play in much better baseball, and they were actually inspired by their best player leaving town. And they, you know, gathered together, and Soto crashed on the scene and was an immovable force all the way through the playoffs, just kept becoming a hero well before his 20th birthday. This is something that's rarely seen. So that's what you're looking for for all these teams. So we said that it was going to be a very interesting September. It's proving to be that. It's proving to be a very tight race. And the Mets had a chance to really, I mean, have this whole division under their thumb if they could have just hit more, hit, have more timely hits, and guys just played just up to their averages, up to the, you know, the, what what they've been doing their whole careers, and you know, especially losing Jacob Degrom just. It sets up the team for uh, you know an uphill battle no matter what. There's no one that can replace him. Stroman has done a fantastic job as the pseudo ace of the team. So hats off to him. But when you look at it, what Jacob Degrom brings you and his ability to save the bullpen, because I, I know that he would have been a guy in August in all these big games saying, I'm going back out there. I'm going back out there, wanting to finish games, wanting to push himself, because that's what the great ones do. They're not going to be satisfied with that. Oh, look, I went six innings two times through the lineup. And, you know, I'm doing really well, but it's a one nothing game, you know, whether we're losing or winning. He was a uh, something that once he went down, it just changed the whole dynamic of that starting rotation. There wasn't a lot of uh, fear. If you can get past Stroman, you had an inconsistent walker who may have been tipping pitches this whole second half for the Yankees to kind of give up what the tell was and be whistling during it. It made it easy for him to realize what he was doing and fix it. And he's been much better after that. That's what you're looking for. This division is going to be exciting. It's going to go down to the last day and maybe go down to an extra day. So hopefully the Mets are still in it. I know I'm going to be watching every single game. Yeah. And you know, the Phillies are in good shape here. And again, you know, you talk about pitchers. DeGrom could, could be here, but he's probably only going five to six innings because every game is scripted. And I know I, I, I tweeted something about, you know, how frustrating it was watching the other night and saying the blue lead. I am aware they didn't blow the lead, but extra runs were given up by the bullpen when they probably shouldn't have been in. I mean, it happened both Friday when finally, finally, someone called out Luis Rojas. Tywin Walker went five innings, 89 pitches, and he said, you know, I was fine to go with six. He was pulled. What happens? Lugo gives up a run. And then why is Brad Hand, who was a guy who should be in mop-up duty, continue to be in high leverage positions? It blows my mind that a guy who was cut by the Blue Jays 
a couple of weeks ago is now the Mets like high leverage reliever. You know, you want to talk about pulling the pitcher early. That's a mistake. But using a guy who was cut in Brad Hand as a in a high leverage spot in September is also a nonsensical move, Figgy, by Luis Rojas. Yeah, I mean, that's cut two times already. And though he was very coveted in the offseason, I will go on record. I don't care. I, from what I see, what my eyes tell me, a guy who had a wipeout breaking ball and now all of a sudden one breaking ball could be in your ear uh, if you're a left-handed hitter. The next breaking ball could be in the other team's dugout. Very inconsistent with his release point and his ability to throw strikes with it and then put people away with it. He was one of the nastiest breaking balls when everybody was trying to sign him as their closer and he winds up going to the Nationals. Right now, with that inconsistency, it makes you really wonder with the sticky stuff if that was the, a big change for him. Uh, there's just a lot of relievers that are very inconsistent who depend on that extra spin, depend on that extra bite on their breaking ball. And we're seeing a lot more sloppier breaking balls coming across the plate and, and getting hurt in, in big situations. Yeah, Brad Hand is not supposed to be the guy in high leverage. You know, how many times can you pitch Aaron Loop in a row? If you could, you would. At this a 2 point. 1 game he was in in the seventh inning on Saturday. And how many runs scored in the seventh? Three. In an inning that Carlos Carrasco should have been pitching. He was at 82 pitches. He had one of his best outings of the year, finally. You know, he only gave up one run in the first. It was like he should have bought a lotto <laughs> ticket there. He didn't give up multiple runs. Carrasco's needs to be in the seventh. He's not. What happened? And listen, people are going to tweet me saying, oh, that was the right move to keep. I agree with that. And not to use hand. You can't agree with it when you lose every time you do it. Make a change. When something's going wrong in your life, you change it. If you're eating and you're fat ass like me and your cholesterol's high, your blood pressure's high, you change your diet. You're losing every game because you pull a starter after six innings. You do something different. Well, Luis Rojas does not. He keeps doing it. So diabetes is on the way apparently change your life change your approach change your ideas change your philosophy because it ain't working if it's broke fix it if it ain't broke don't fix it it's broke it's broker than <laughs> i don't know who it's broke it's broker than you ever got robbed off bernie madoff i don't know it's the cliche machine that's broken no honestly when you look at Rojas and having to learn and should have learned by now my biggest frustration comes in where he's saying you know at this point in the season is when you want to protect arms there is no freaking way you're trying to protect arms at this point these guys should be leaving it all out on the line the Phillies bullpen we used to have a t-shirt JC Romero used to wear it all the time just said throw to you blow literally you're going to give up your arm for this team you're going to give them everything you got every time you're called upon you want to be out there. You want to be able to contribute to a winning season. No and we're problem. not even asking them for that, Figgy. We're asking for seven innings. We're not asking for a complete game. Just give me seven, give me loop, and then give me Diaz, it, and I'm fine. It, it's, it's also give me loop. He throws a five-pitch inning. Can I have a little bit more loop? for today or we've seen that how many times now where they're like oh we didn't want to put him back out there you know just concerns over him bouncing back bouncing back it is september you're in a pennant race he's mowing through three major league hitters in 10 pitches or less you put his ass back out there you let a sleeping dog lie you don't bring in another guy a guy who's going to have more pressure on him because this guy just threw seven pitches he had less time to warm up and prepare and get ready for the inning when he comes in and then you all of a sudden you have edwin diaz who's firing rockets all over the place crossing up his catcher with a 99 mile hour fastball and you know giving a team a chance when they should have no chance at all um that's one of the things that surely has to be changed is just the way that you're using these guys you're not abusing them you're just using them they're paid professionals as when we talked to doc he said about you know these guys are training they're bigger faster stronger 
but they're breaking down more. It's because the level of expectation has been dropped down so low that anytime you pass that bar, you are so sore. You're so, uh, my arm is sore. This doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. And we have taught these new pitchers that if you don't feel, if you don't feel a hundred percent, don't pitch. I would have loved to have asked Doc, did you ever feel 100% when you pitched? Because we didn't. If you threw enough innings, if you were that good to throw enough innings and throw enough pitches and, and be used in that many ball games in a row, you weren't going to feel good. But that your 100% or your 80% was better than someone else's 100%. And that really comes with confidence that, you know what, when the co- manager comes around, hey, can you give me an inning? You're damn right I can. I give and you that's two. the thing. It's hard for these guys to be confident when they're not given the opportunity. And mm-hmm. you go by what your manager goes, and your manager essentially has quit on the team. And if the manager going to quit on the team, the players are going to follow suit. And that doesn't fly in New York. You could go by the numbers as much as you want. This is a mental game. You fail. We always talk about this. You fail seven seven and a half times out of ten, really, this year for a lot of hitters. You fail so much more than you have success. And for you to not get any confidence, any vote of confidence from your manager to say, here, Carlos, I'm going to give you the seventh. Here, Taiwan, I'm going to give you the sixth, not even the seventh. When you never get that, that you're instilled in your brain, all right, I'm not great. I can't go seven, eight innings. When you really could, but you're you're just not given that chance. So this is a mental game. And and when you're not having a manager fire you up before a game, I know some people think that's overrated with guys flipping tables and manager flipping tables. I don't. You didn't have it a ton, but you had guys get you guys fired up before a game, right? You had managers. It's a mental thing. You had managers say, hey, this is a pennant race. Well, yeah, you didn't make the playoffs. You had teams come close, and you had managers say, hey, I'm going to give you a kick in the ass and give you a motivational speech here. I'm going to hold you accountable here. I'm going to hold me accountable for this decision. Zero, absolutely zero accountability on this Mets team. Well, I mean, you look at the managers through the years and with the 30 for 30 documentary, Davey Johnson, you see how ahead of his time he was with some of the analytics. He had a computer that ran some simulations of, you know, how the game could play out if he did X, Y, and Z. And he, it, that was a game to him. That's like playing a video game. That's like playing a video game and preparing yourself for the actual game. So you say, hey, you know, I, I see these scenarios happening before they actually happen. That's about being prepared. That's one thing. What Davey Johnson did was he instilled confidence in these guys that they didn't care where they were playing, at what point in the game they were playing, where they were at in the lineup. He had a pretty steady lineup. You know, they might have mixed it around depending on lefty-righty matchups at most. What you also had was a manager who their very first team meeting said in 86, we're going to dominate this division. Not we're going to win. Not we're going to compete. That's normally what you hear from teams. And, and it's, you know, it's like a PC meeting now. You can't say bad words. You can't curse. You can't say anything. Uh, okay, we're going to go out and compete. No, I don't want you to compete. I want you to go out there and every time feel like you have not just a chance to win, but you're not going to find a way to lose. They're going to have to find a way to beat you because you're not losing the ball game. That's what that 86 swagger was about. And the Mets at times, when they hit, they have that. But when they don't have the bats to back it up and you're looking at a, star, a Mets starter gives up two or three runs early in the game and it feels like it's 30 nothing by the fifth inning. It's been like that all year long and a good manager finds a way to kind of nip that in the bud or, or nip that feeling, you know, from permeating throughout your team. It happens to one or two guys. Like Jacob DeGrom didn't get a lot of run support ever, but you always felt like you had a chance to win a ball game because he was on the mound. That's a total different animal. So when you have these other guys that are trying to compete on the mound for you, you know, you've got to push them a little bit. You've got to give them the opportunity to have some success in situations because they'll never grow. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're really causing them to stagnate 
the growth process because they'll never have the experience of pitching three times through the lineup if you never let them do it. You could give me the three times through the lineup stats as much as you want. There's not a big enough sample size to tell me that that's why this pitcher is not in the game. There's just not. I love to see hopefully next year now more opportunities. We got to hold ourselves accountable for never having Sarah McCrory wear the nail polish for losing her bet. I mean, came to the live event, you were running the running the board, and you failed to bring the nail polish. So I think right now, in amazing but true, you got to hold yourself accountable for a poor job on your bet yeah well you didn't tell me to bring it i totally forgot but now i have these stupid mets fingernail things so what am i gonna do with them all right well figgy maybe the last home game of the year we, we you'll have to go and have sarah do this or something there's only four games left one's a doubleheader and it's the marlins so there's gonna be four people in the building so no, no one is gonna really see it but sarah we got to hold you accountable for wearing those. And we might have to get you a Mets jersey. You have a favorite player, Pete Alonzo and Lindor? I'm good. I'm good. That's, that's what's going to sound my nails are blue. My nails are blue right now. Does that count? No, it doesn't count. One of the, one of the hands has to be orange. The other has got to be Mets decals. You got to be orange and blued out. Uh, so we got to make that happen. You know, one cute moment from the weekend was Javi Baez. Shout out to my guy, Chris Simon, photographer. Got a great photo of him and his kid watching the fireworks. Unfortunately, came after a loss, but you have to remember, these guys are human. You know, that was a nice human moment to see him and his kid watching fireworks. Just an adorable thing. Carry that. Carry those fireworks into these final 12 games. 73 and 77 begins in Boston Tuesday and Wednesday. Well, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Queens, you'll enjoy our next segment and you'll enjoy it anyway if you're a Mets fan. And by the way, we might see Noah Syndergaard pitching a game this weekend in Milwaukee. So that's something, another thing to watch for. Won't throw curveballs, maybe fastball changeups. Uh, unless they have him rehab, but we might see him make one or two appearances before this season's over. Uh, and at this point, we'll see. Maybe we get one Jacob DeGrom outing. Seems like the Mets are trying to uh, sell a couple extra tickets for that series against the Marlins if it doesn't mean anything. But joining us next is a guy who means everything to the Mets. It's 1986 World Series champion Dwight, a.k.a. Doc Gooden, right here on Amazing But True. Joining us now on Amazing But True is a friend of the program. Figgy, he's made like four appearances. I think he's in the record holder for appearances on Amazing But True. And why not? He's a four-time All-Star, a 1986 Mets World Series champion, a Cy Young winner, Rookie of the Year winner, two-time strikeout leader, Mets All-Famer, 194 career win, Silver Slugger Award winner, Triple Crown winner, MLB wins leader, MLB ERA leader. And he had a decade with the Mets, 2,293 strikeouts. Doc Gooden, the doctor, is on the line with us now here on Amazing But True. And that might be the fastest I've ever read an intro in the history of my podcast career. You can follow him on Instagram at Doc Gooden, at Doc Gooden 16 on Twitter. And Doc, a part of Once Upon a Time in Queens, all four parts are out, the 30 for 30 on ESPN. Figgy, me and you are halfway through, and we were were tallying the Lenny Dykstra curse count, Doc. Uh, They they left every F-bomb in there, and... So far, so good. Uh, what was your initial reactions to seeing uh, seeing yourself on there? Uh, you know, I've seen part one. haven't seen the whole thing yet. I'm waiting to go down to Tampa to watch the rest with my kids and grandkids. Uh, my young kids, they didn't see me play. My older kids, I have seven kids. I was married twice. Five with the first wife. They see me play. And then my young kids, they only saw me play the old Thomas game. So I figured I'll watch it with them. I go down to Tampa. So we watch it together. Come straight have pretty... A lot of questions. So it'll be pretty cool. But I did see part one. I'm very happy with it. I thought they did a good job from everything I've heard from the fans and my teammates. So definitely fun to relive that. And then obviously to share that with the fans. It's a great time for the city of New York. So um, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it, you know, part two, three, and four. Yeah, with that tremendous intro by Jake Brown with all those accolades, I know the one that stands out most for you. I, I want to hear what which one is the, the one that you're most impressed by. Oh, man. I would say probably from an individual 
individual standpoint, even though I'm a, I'm a man at heart, you guys know that, but probably be the no-hitter from a personal standpoint. But from a team standpoint, I would say, obviously, the 86 World Series. All, all the reason I say that the no-hitter was because, like, my dad taught me the game of baseball at a young age. Uh, he taught me my mechanics. He played a big part of my career. I used to talk to my dad after every start before I would talk to the media. And unfortunately, the day I pitched the no-hitter, I was supposed to go home to be with my dad, who was having open-heart surgery the next day. He had been on dialysis for 15 years. I, I decided I would pitch instead of go home to be with him. I pitched, but it turned out to be a no-hitter. The next day, I took a ball from the game home, gave it to him at the hospital. At that time, he was on life support. He ended up you know, passing away, but the last game he saw me pitch, was the no-hitter. So that's what makes the no-hitter the number one that stands out for me. Oh, wow. I had no idea about that. You know, here I was ready to give you some ribbon because I figured it'd be the silver slugger that you would start out with. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Silver slugger, oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, pitchers love to hit, man. No doubt about it. Let me tell you something, Jake. It's a very weird feeling when you get a text message from Doc Gooden at 8 o'clock in the morning of a video of him hitting a home run on these random days where they'd be like, <laughs> they do this every, I'm telling you, it's the most surreal thing uh, in my life. <laughs> I got to look at my phone and see Doc Good, and, and it's a video of him hitting a home run. And I go, I don't want to watch this. He goes, I got eight more coming your way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love the hit, man. And I actually wanted to be a hitter, but obviously pitcher was my ticket. But it's funny, too, because, true story, every time I took it in bat, I felt like I played in my head, like, okay, I'm up now. I am a hitter. I'm not a pitcher right now where I'm batting. I'm a hitter. I just start giving my head. Or if I was pitching sometimes and struggling a bit, I will say, man, if I can get through these next two innings, I get to hit again. So I should <laughs> all those mind games with myself, man. And it was a lot of fun. So I ended up with eight home runs. Not that I was keeping count, but I did have eight. <laughs> Doc, Figgy's just jealous because he got a triple and he was excited over that. He was one base short of uh, ever homering in his career. So. Hey, oh man! I, I wanted to run yeah. through the stop sign, but they they held me up. I was gonna just keep going. You never know, it's like little league, just keep going till they tag you. Oh, definitely, most <laughs> definitely. And, and you know, the funny thing was, every home run I hit, the, the hardest part about that was trying to run around the bases and not smile, trying to pretend like you've done it before. That was the toughest thing, man. <laughs> when you look back uh, at the '86 Doc and the '86 teams, is it always fun? Do, does it bring dark mixed with great memories? Is it is it all worlds combined? Because obviously, if you're gonna watch with the kids, there's gonna be they're gonna have questions about everything that yeah. happened in those years. There's gonna be questions you got to answer. Is it is it mixed emotions when you look back to that those times? Great question. It's definitely mixed emotions, man. The one that I always struggle with and I've gotten a lot better with, but to be honest with you guys, is I still struggle today with, but not as much, is I'm missing the parade. So I'll have to definitely shut up with my kids and it doesn't matter how much time goes by, years or whatever, but every time that comes up, whether it's an interview, whether it's going to be a documentary or whatever it is, it still bothers me a little bit because the thing about it, I can't redo that. I can never redo that and take part of that World Series. Yes, I got to be a part of the Yankees World Series twice, but I still can't redo that 86 World Series. That was my first. That was with the guys who, you know, a lot of us played in the minors together. I can't redo that. And that still bothers me a little bit today. Um, not as much as it once did, but it's still there. No doubt about it. So that's the one that sticks out more than anything. Obviously, you know, when the Joy Scouts started all that there, it's there as well. That's something, you know, I deal with on a daily basis um, with counseling and what have you. But the parade, you know, that's something that people say, oh, get over it. It's been 35 years. But that's something that, for me personally, because you shoot for that your whole your whole career, you shoot for that first one. And for that to happen and me not miss, and miss the parade, that's what it's all about. I can't get that back. So that one will be the tough one when I sit down and, and watch with my kids. Yeah, you know, one of the reoccurring dreams that you and the nightmares you always have is that you're showing up late to the ballpark and it's your turn to start and, and you're trying to, you know, it's five minutes to the game. I'll be fine. I'll just warm up quick. And like, no, no, we can't do it. For me, that was always like the reoccurring nightmare. So I, I can't even imagine what it's like all these years later, probably the hugest moment of your young career. And, and you miss that. And I was there actually when you got the key to the city 
uh, all these years later, SNY, uh, you know, being right there, right near the, uh, the city hall, uh, I went down and watched when they, when they handed you and, and some of your old teammates were there, you know, so that was a, still a special moment. They wanted to make up to you as well because of what you've endured and what you've been through. And you've been very open and honest with the, the trials and tribulations of, of your young career. I feel that you are such a tremendous resource to these younger players and these players that are playing in New York for the first time about the good and the bad part of New York, that you're an untapped resource that I think the Mets need to use a lot more of, not just in a 30 for 30 essence, but you could be a valuable to the ball club every single day. And thank you, Fix. And I would love to do that. Um, I put it out there. I have my guys contact the Mets. We still waiting to hear back on that. Um, obviously, they let me do the, you know, the visiting the suites and the meet and greets. So it, that's all fine. But you know, I love the game of baseball, man. I watch all the games, whether it's Mets, Yankees. I'll, I'll watch if it's the Pirates playing Minnesota. I'll watch. I love the game. And like you say, I've, I've been through all the highs and lows, man. And these guys, that's one of the things, man, Mookie actually talked with um, um, Steve Cohen's wife about when was at the foundation um, dinner he had at his house about, you know, setting a tone. Like, like say, for instance, like the Yankees. Yankees. You know, everybody go to the Yankees and say, yeah, you got to do it the Yankee way. You know what that is. Because when you wear the uniform, it's Yankee pride. You wear the tradition. You go on the road. Like, well, some Yankees, you wear a suit coat and love. And then, like, the Mets. What is the Mets way? I think it's something you start at the mountain levels, talking to these guys about dealing with the New York media. Because it's totally different than dealing with anywhere else, dealing with the New York fans and understanding that if you get booed, it's not you that booing, they're booing your performance. And you know if you think that they are not, it's the performance they're getting on. And being able to accept that, being a man, being in front of your locker after every game, whether you hit three home runs or, or you struck out three times, it doesn't matter. It's been accountable for the good and bad. But letting these guys know at a young, at the, at the lower levels, oh, getting them prepared for that. And also when these guys get to the majors, you know, because a lot of these guys are coming through real fast now. But let them know what's the, what is the Met way and starting that. You gotta start from what's sort of traditional thing, but more than anything, being a voice to let these guys know, hey, I've been there, I've been through this. It's totally different, obviously, other places you can come here. And I think, uh, like Lindor, I know Lindor a little bit. Great guy, great player. He's starting to play his game now. Um, I played in Cleveland also, and the Cleveland fans, Cleveland media is totally different than New York. I mean, there's no comparison. And I think he got a, you know, probably the first time he ever got booed coming here. But I would have loved to have the opportunity to talk to him about that and dealing with that. I think I could have been helpful. Now I think he's starting to get his feet wet and get a feel of it because he is a great guy um, and obviously a great player. But just, I'm just using him as an example for any guys, young guys, veteran guys coming to New York for the first time. I would love to share my advice to them, whether I'm working for the Mets or not, just being a voice to them to share my experience on and off the field. Absolutely. I think we, uh, I was very lucky. They had a rookie development camp when I was coming up through the minor leagues and we got a chance to, uh, two current players, you know, I was Jeffrey Hammonds and Homer Bush at the time who were taking a, a weekend in January and trying to show us the ropes, doing different scenarios. Like if you're at a bar and you get approached, you know, from from a girl, do you leave with her? What do you do? And all these different things and, and you know, what to avoid and, and what to look for. So you were a little bit more prepared going into it. So I think that would be a, a huge asset to the organization. Not just that, but listen, I know your dad taught you how to throw a curveball. And if I ever had the opportunity to see a ball in your hands, I'd ask you how you threw your curveball and I'm 47 years old I still want to learn about the game so with all these analytics and everything else going on yes the machine is telling you the rotations on the ball but if Doc Gooden's telling me what to feel and when to feel it and how to release this ball that's who I want to learn from not some guy who's never played baseball before who can read a a rotation or spin rate on a machine so I think again you're a wealth of knowledge that has to be tapped into and hopefully Steve Cohen uh, will be able to do something that will make that happen shortly. Uh, thank you for the covers. You're absolutely right because we're all analytics and all that stuff. I think some of it's helpful, but it's still a game. It's still a baseball. You still got to go play the game. 
you still got to learn, like you said, the rotation, the mechanics, all that. Because these guys, they're bigger and stronger, and nothing against nobody. The bigger and stronger, they're still breaking down. They're still showing off injuries. And why does that happen? Nobody's teaching these guys the proper mechanics. It don't matter how hard you throw. Your mechanics not right. You're only going to be good for half the season or whatever, if you're lucky, because eventually you're going to break down. So these guys, the basic stuff that analytics don't teach, that's all. You know, just basic stuff. I think you'd be um, helpful in both. And analytics, I think it works to a certain degree. But still, as pitchers, they're taught to attack. You got to go what works for you. This guy struggles with a fastball curveball, but hey, oh, this guy might be a great fastball hitter, but it's not telling you who fastball is hitting. And to me, there's no better pitch. If you're throwing 97, 98, I don't care how good a fastball hitter this guy is. If you're hitting your spots with a fastball, not a perfect pitch, but a quality pitch, this guy's still going to have trouble. I don't know anybody who hit a nice located fastball on a consistent basis. So, Doc, reacting to a couple of those things. First off, did you, like a lot of Mets fans, were you, I don't know about frustrated, but disappointed in uh, Lindor and Baez and, you know, giving the fans a thumbs down and booing them, especially Baez, who was only here a few weeks when he did it? I, I would say I, wouldn't, I, was, I was a little disappointed a little bit yes because and, and again these guys coming from different cities where they don't know they probably never been booed in Alec Lindor I'm sure he never been booed in Cleveland I would bet anything I got it never happened in Cleveland you know they just solid as Jake all the time but these guys it's more like a you know just a meeting where they just meet there and they get booed and in Chicago I'm sure Bias was one of the beloved guys it probably never happened and so they come here to get booed and they probably take it personally and start doing that. That's something you can't do. Nelly mentioned earlier, these guys don't know any better. Nobody's there to tell them the right way. There's no met way or the right way to deal with this situation. And that's probably the first time they're in a situation like that and they fully got involved. And they're like, again, they didn't understand. Yeah, you're playing bad, you're not helping, you don't hear about it. Whether it's in the paper or the fans will let you know. But it's your performance they're getting on, not you personally. And I think these guys get their own way. I think they learned the valuable lessons going through that. As a fan, Met alumni, a fan of the game, you don't want to see that. You never want to see that. Because the fans, to me, have the right to boo if something's not right. But in New York, if you win or you just hustling and playing hard, they recognize that as well and they appreciate that. But you can't or you can't do that. Sometimes said you can't do it. I don't know if these guys are doing it from a personal standpoint. I just there's something you can't do. But hopefully the fans forgave these guys because they are good guys. I know both of them personally. They are good guys and it just was a, hopefully a, a mental mistake that can't happen. Would you re-sign Bias? I would, yes. I would definitely re-sign Bias. I think he's a guy obviously he strikes out a lot but everybody strikes out a lot. He has um, to bring his excitement to the club. Great defensive player. He hustles. He plays hard. And I think a guy like that gives the team a little bit of identity because he's going to do some things that you probably, you know, don't agree with. But I think he shows up and plays hard every single day from what I've seen. And that's a guy I would definitely take him. And hopefully they can resign him. And since and since then, guys, he's he's been incredible. I mean, since thumbs down, it's been only thumbs up, stats wise, running the bases, everything. Reacting to the analytics, Luis Rojas has used analytics up the wazoo, Doc. I mean, it's been very robotic, this Mets team. It feels like, you know, some people, you know, there was a security worker at City Field quoted that, you know, he said the team quit. Seems like they quit. I mean, it seems like they're moving on from him. But do you think the Mets kind of need more of a voice here in the clubhouse, Doc? Someone, a lot of people mentioned Buck Showalter, but guy who goes more by the feel of the game and less by the books and analytics and matchups every game. I I would like to say more on 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 a manager going more what he feels. Because he's there, he, he can read body language from players. Davey Johnson's the best at that. And believe it or not, Davey Johnson used analytics a little bit back then, but mostly he went on field. He went on what he saw in guys' body language and everything. Davey was good with talking to guys, communicating with guys. Analytics, I think now, Buck Sowater, I don't know if he'll really fit or not fit because everything is so analytics. But on the flip side of that, Tony LaRusso is doing a great job with the White Sox. Now, he's an old-time, old-time manager. He's doing a great job with that. Rojas is in a situation where I think a lot of stuff that he's in the decisions he's making, I'm not sure if they're actually coming from him. I don't know for sure, but I don't know. 
one of the things I do notice as a fan and watching the game baseball, and I do know from playing with some veteran guys, they change the lineup a lot. The lineup, the bat noise changed a lot. I'm, I'm pretty sure these guys like to know when they come to the ballpark, they know where they're hitting. Put them in a situation and let them stay there. If a guy gets hot, if he's batting seven, he gets real hot, don't put him second or third. Let him stay there. I think guys get comfortable hitting in certain spots. And, you know, baseball is a mental game. A lot of it's mental. Leaving there. So that's one of the things. I mean, I'm not a manager, never been a manager, but I do know from talking to players, I've been around players, guys, you know, keep the lineup the same as much you possibly can, but saying the lineup is a different lineup almost every day. But Doc, I, I think I think what, what frustrates me and makes me pull my non-existent hair out of my bald head is that you know he pulling guys with eighty-five pitches through five through five six innings. He hasn't changed that. It's always every night this guy's coming out of the six. That that decision was like made before the game. It seems like, and, and you're a guy who you know eighty-six pitches. You would laugh at Doc. You're throwing one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty, and I know those days are over. But you know, Taiwan Walker called him out over the weekend and said I was fine to pitch another inning. Don't you think? It's a moot point because he'll probably be gone in two weeks. But don't you think they need to be pushing these starters to go seven? Because when you talk about arm care, it doesn't seem like they care much for the relievers' arms because they're going to have to pitch every day when your starters only going five innings, eighty pitches, six innings, eighty-five pitches. Oh, one hundred percent. You're exactly right. I, I, I totally agree with you, one hundred percent, with that. But again, I don't think that's coming from Rojas. I mean, I could be wrong. I think before they even take the mound, they already got these guys set. You know, eighty-five pitches, eighty-six pitches because LA say they get in trouble or they get tired or whatever after X amount of pitches, which is a bunch of bull. Every, every start is a new start. The way I look at it, and you're right, these bullpen, a lot of these guys are pitching every day, and if they're not pitching they're getting up in the pen, which is like pitching. I mean, and you're right. Of course, like now, September, these guys are tired. They got to be tired. They throw it almost every day, they bullpen. And, and the starters, when they finally have a good game or a great game at goal seven, they're not used to it. And yet they'll get tired. So they're not building these guys up to do that. And I don't really blame the pitchers, like you said. That is already premeditated, I think, before the game. Oh, how many pitches are they going to let this guy go? They're not going to let this guy face the lineup, you know, for the third time. It's already premeditated, in my mind. So I don't know if I blame Rojas for that. I just think it's pretty much out of his hands. You know, it's it's been difficult to to kind of watch the transition in baseball the way it's happening that way. But one thing that never changes is that it's a band of brothers who have each other's backs. And when you talk about Baez and signing Baez back, I think he brings the Mets a little bit more of that swagger of the 86 team. That team was willing to fight anyone at any time, and they didn't even care why. That's one of the funniest things I've been watching the series and you hear every single time there's a fight they're like we don't even know why it started bill robinson went and got into a fight the first base coach took somebody <laughs> out so that's the kind of thing that you want on a team that you guys are uh, fighting together and you want to see that kind of passion we saw that in the subway series where they were calling out the yankees for cheating and so i think that's what's something that's surely missed with this team is that kind of fire that kind of uh, a passion for playing the game that kind of pride and so you talk about yankee pride Baez, the way that they go about their business and they have that swagger and they play hard. There's nobody that can say that he doesn't play hard. He's putting up numbers like Cespedes did when he got traded over here, and yet he's doing even more on the base pass and with the defense uh, at another level. So he is. But they guy. also need that fire from a manager. You need you need you to get it. some of that. It can't well, all come from the players. Some of it's got to come from well, a manager too. I think I agree with both of you guys. And, and Nella, you're right. I think Baez brings so much to the table than just what he's doing on the field in the clubhouse and the fire. 
So this guy plays hard. And, and like I say, he don't care who the team is or who the pitcher is. He's going to do his thing. And like you mentioned, I remember <laughs> I was pitching with you. This is a true story. These guys will tell you. I remember Kevin Mitchell and Strawberry came to the game. And they told me I was pitching that day. I was going to say, Doc, hits my Let's have a fight today. I'm like, man, at least let me get five innings in. <laughs> you know, let me, get, let me get five innings in at least. You know, that's the kind of team we have. We didn't care. We didn't like anybody. We didn't care who liked us, who didn't like us. That's just the attitude we had. And our team was so tight together. Yes, we had, you know, run-ins with each other at times, but we handled it in the house. But we had guys that, you know, we'll together, man, no matter what. We had each other's back. Like you mentioned, the manager got to bring the fire. But if the manager don't bring the fire, you got to have a player or two players to do that. You know, we had like Keith Evans, Ray Knight, and even Gary Carter, one of the nicest guys. But once that, it was 7 o'clock, Gary Carter was a different guy, man. This guy played just as hard as anybody and would do anything to win, no doubt about it. And you have to have that on the team. Somebody has to do it. Even if your manager brings a fire, you still got to have some players that's willing to call each other out, hold each other accountable. You have to have that, no doubt about it. I say it every show. I just think Rojas has held no one accountable. And I think you need a manager, Doc, that holds guys accountable because then the players are going to hold each other accountable. When the manager is saying the same old song after every game and you know saying that September games are the same as April when it clearly a sense of urgency needs to be had right now for a team that's falling out of the playoff race. It's hard to back that. And I I don't know who the voice is. I know Bob Melvin is a guy that's come up if he were to leave Oakland. Um, him and Billy Bean, if they were to come over here, I think that's plan B right after Theo Epstein, if they could pull that off. It needs a it needs a change of leadership and a new voice in here, Doc. Wow, you got to go right at it. <laughs> um, Thoughts? You know, um, it's funny because I think as a manager, you can't want to be the player's friends. You can't be friends with the players. You got to do your job, and the players, that's where you get the respect from. You guys probably see it more than I do. I don't really know, but do they need a new voice? I'm not sure because, again, a lot of this stuff is, is already premeditated for us. When the guy comes out, what's the lineup? When the guy has the day off, all this stuff's already there. So I can't put all of it on Rojas. Some of it, yes, but I can't put all of it on him because a lot of it now, to me, it seems like, you know, before games, I guess they meet in analytics. They play this guy. This guy got numbers against this guy. I mean, all these different things goes into place but at the same time like you say the press conference and so on you can't be saying the same old tone because I'm sure players are watching they're watching their reactions to different things and they're feeding off of you I know a lot of our stuff we were, we've played off of David Johnson David Johnson was a real fiery guy no nonsense guy he was what we call a players manager he'd go out to eat with us play cars with us on the plane but he still had a set of rules as long as you didn't cross that line everything was fine but David's going to fight for us whether it was right or wrong he was going to fight for us on the field maybe behind closed doors he might come up to us and say hey you should have did this or don't do that again or whatever but on the field, he was on our side. You, you got to have somebody to lead the ship, no doubt about it. Whoever comes in or they say Rojas or whatever, somebody has to lead the ship. And then no doesn't sense, guys. And hold these guys accountable. And I'm sure they respect you more that way. I, I feel like I go to dinner with Luis Rojas. He's, he's counting the calories on the meal. And he's, he's comparing it, analytics of the calories to uh, the appetizers, to the desserts, and, and to the main course. I hate to re- listen. I respect the guy, the hell out of the guy for getting to this point. He worked his way through the minor leagues. The players loved him. He earned the job, but I think he might have been in over his head here. Uh, last season, he you know he had the weird 60-game year. You kind of throw that out the window. But this year, we're kind of seeing a lot of moves hurt this team. And listen, the hitting has also sucked. They are just getting no clutch hit stock. That's obvious. I shouldn't even say that, but it's just been awful seeing this team underachieve like they have. It is really frustrating to watch. Yeah, you're right. I never seen nothing like that because these guys on paper, man, they have too much talent. Again, it's on paper. They have way too much talent with the lineup to do what they do, especially with the numbers with men in score position. It's been somewhat embarrassing because men on second and third, I don't know how many times I've seen that with less than two outs, you can't get the guy in and get the guy over. I think part of that, once again, I hate to say it, but it starts by for his minor leagues and how they're preparing these guys because now everybody's trying to hit the home run and lunch anger. Then you get the guys in a situation where you try to cut down your finger or whatever and you had not been working on it. It's hard to do. All this stuff starts at the minor league levels. 
getting these guys ready for the big leagues and ready for a situation like that because they're not being taught that way. So I don't know if I can really blame the players to a certain degree because, you know, they're learning and stuff at the big league level. It's tough, but it's hard to watch. I don't know how many times I've seen bases loaded, you know, second, third, less than two outs, and we may get one run and maybe not get none. With these other teams, same situation, they get two or three runs. It's, it's tough to watch. Well, Doc, it's always good to have you on. I was I host the Jets show, too, with Brian Castell, and we were talking about you and how he, you know, you guys wrote letters back and or he wrote letters to you back and forth when you were in jail, I think, 15 years ago or something like that. He had kind things to say about you. Yeah, he's a good man. I, I like Brian. Tell him I say hello. Hope all is well. Yeah, of course. And Doc Gooden, you can follow on Instagram at Doc Gooden, Doc Gooden 16 on Twitter. Once Upon a Time in Queens is out, go watch it. We're all going to finish it soon. And uh, so far, it's been very enjoyable. And that team, man, uh, if the Mets could just do it again, light up the city. Maybe less Studio 54 and, uh, you know, you know, some partying, but a little less. And because uh, yeah, yeah, th- there's too much TMZ and Twitter out there, Doc, now for, for uh, guys to get away with that. Yeah, don't be like me. It's like in the private apple. I try to eat the whole apple. <laughs> Definitely don't be like me. But these guys can understand, man. If you can win in New York, these guys will love you forever. I mean, they I love the 86 team is still getting today and I love the fans and the support they've given us all these guys gotta do is just win man whatever it takes and understand that it's a privilege to win that uniform that's what they gotta get back to understand when that uniform is a privilege and I think they'll be alright just win baby that's why we've had Doc on five times 86 years later he's still on Amazing but true once again Doc Gooden we appreciate the time bro we'll talk to you soon oh definitely thank you guys for having me man you guys keep up the good work That's a sayonara to episode 88, the Tom Goodwin edition of Amazing But True, our Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to you, Jake and Sarah McCrory, for producing the show. Give Amazing But True a five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Email us at amazingbuttruepod at gmail.com or tweet us at amazingbuttrue. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We return on Thursday following the Mets' two-game series in Boston. Enjoy the game, stay alive, and let's go Mets.